Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. Intro Man. It is Brendan here with Mark, Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com. Episode 89, Friday, June the 21st. And Mark, the show must go on. The show must go on. We could not not do a show, could we? I've, I've been a little bit, I've had a little bit of what what um, what people have kindly described to me as the man flu, Mark, um, this week. And it's been about a week and a half since since I came back from my China trip and um, spend all that time overseas and then I come back um, to Melbourne and I and I get the lurgy. So I spent most of this afternoon um, um, prostate in bed, Mark, and um, struggled through half a day work t- today and um, probably trying to do the same tomorrow. But as usual, the girls at home aren't particularly, um, particularly um, kind to me. <laughs> They've... Um, They've said, um, just keep away from us. And um, <laughs> uh, when, when I get fed my dinner, um, I get put in that, put in isolation and um, in the room next door. And um, Sophie, my youngest, is um, just about to finish her last first year at university exam uh, tomorrow. So Annette doesn't want me to be sick. And I may, um, I may cut off a few times here while I have coughing attacks or about, uh, I'm about to have a sneeze actually at the moment. But, um, yeah, so that's what I've been up to. What have you been up to, Mark? Brendan, I'm sure we're all your um, lurgy, so stay stay with us. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with it. Um, I've been really genuinely busy i've i've had um i've had some business meetings the end of the financial years approaching and i've had to have some business meetings i have um i had to uh go to my monthly board meeting over the last couple of days i've spent some time in sydney at mascot at the new south wales veterinary practitioners board um and we've been busy at work on top of it print and i don't know where i find the time to fit it in the these these i've got to say that these discussions um, we have are pleasant respite from the busyness of the week, my friend. So I look forward to these in the hurly-burly of, um, of trying to fit everything else in. Well, the... Um it's better being busy than not, isn't it, Mark? Really, because then you start to, as a business owner, you start to start to worry or, or perhaps panic a tad, don't you? If um, if things aren't going really well, um, just a shout out to, <coughs> excuse me, our sponsors. Um, thank you for your help, and for those of you who are listening, long time listeners who have not sponsored us. Um, we like you listening regardless, so don't worry. <laughs> but if you do want to sponsor us, you can go to vetgurus.com and find the link to patreon.com as a place to go to throw us a bone, as we like to say. And, Mark, I was I did mention last week, and I forgot to tell you about it before the before we started recording, about the list of the countries um, that, um, that the, the top ten countries of, of numbers um, of people who listen to us. 
And I do not think you will have any idea what number three is, Mark. And let me let me give you a bit of help. Let's do the top five. So um, number one, as far as the numbers go, is, is Australasia, um, obviously, um, because we're in that region. Um, number two is the United States. Um, so what do you think number three will be, Mark? I would, I would have guessed somewhere in Europe. So I'm tipping Italy. Try again. Try again. I'll give you three guesses. Three guesses. Am, am I in the right, like, hemisphere? Well, um, y- yes. The right continent. I won't give it away, Mark. Two more guesses. Spain. No, it is Kazakhstan. <laughs> very nice. Get- very nice. We have a very... A very big um, listenership in Kazakhstan, and, and um, that's fired up um, my dog, Patch, here. She's getting very excited. I might have to let her out to the toilet in a sec when you um, talk about your review in, in two secs. Um, and number four was um, Canada, and number five is the UK, United Kingdom. So, yeah. It's one of the, it's, so it's one of the genuine, like, uh, it's a combination of surprise and um, – and a real pleasure that, um, first of all, that anyone listens to us, but um, that people listen to us from such disparate and distant places. Um, it, it's it's like, I don't know, lifts me up, Brendan. I feel really positive about it when I when I look at those statistics and I see where people are, uh, are taking time out of their day or maybe just flicking us on in the car or, um, or I don't know, when they listen to us. But uh, it's, uh, it's a genuine... Um, pleasure, and I reach out to all those people, particularly in Kazakhstan. Um, send us um, um, a question. Get on the webpage. Get on the uh, um, email, and um, and, uh, and stimulate us to discuss a topic you'd love to uh, have us talk about. We'd we'd really, uh, in as well as finding out where people come from, we really genuinely enjoy uh, communicating about topics they're interested in. Absolutely. And even if you haven't got a question, if you're in Kazakhstan, send us an email and say, why are you listening to us? How did you find us? And why is there over 600 um, um, listens um, recently in Kazakhstan? Perhaps it was a, a rogue computer, Mark, that um, a, a bot that, that went um, horribly wrong <laughs> when it was trying to, do a, um, trying to do a denial of service attack or something to us. And, um, and it happened to be recorded as downloading our program so yeah hello to you in Kazakhstan so you have a review mark of a of a particular I did, did, I did want to um talk about it's uh, not a system that we use with unusual and exotic or avian patients Brendan I did today uh, have the pleasure of doing um a, a tibial tuberosity advancement surgery and I used the Securos system. I know there's a number of different systems out there um, but I did uh, um, I've, I've had a uh, um, a surgical intern who worked for us an excellent veterinarian. I um, miss him being at work very much but he set us up with all this equipment and, um, and today I uh, um, broke it out of the tin that it's in 
thought you were going to say you broke a leg, <laughs> which you um, basically did, didn't you? Essentially, we um, we did the little uh, the little cut and placed the plate and put the cage in the space after having done the complex measurements on the radiograph. Uh, but I did want to say that I found the use of the um, Secure system, the the uh, the whole kit. Um, uh, rel- it made the procedure relatively intuitive, um, and uh, and I, I uh, um, it uh, um, the radiographs after the procedure looked um, uh, uh, really good. The dog's uh, anterior draw was neutralised, and um, and all together, I think we uh, uh, I think I, I'd be very happy to use that system in an ongoing fashion. Um, it- Excellent. So, what's the score? Oh. What What is the score out of ten, Mark? Oh, obviously, out of ten. Um, I, 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 somewhere between eight and nine, Brendan. It, it's a an easy system to use. Um, it there's a fair few bits to it, and um, making sure you're familiar with the role of each of the tools, and making sure you've got sufficient cages, because I did find that. Um, and this is not just the Securos system. It's uh, a bit of a universal thing with the TTAs that uh, you do all your measurements, you prepare the the, uh, the gear that you want to use in a particular dog, and then yes. you've got to make sure you're prepared to make those adjustments intraoperatively, um, and we definitely had to do that today. So making sure you're familiar with the whole thing is, you know, step one, but um, I did find it relatively easy to use, and uh, I give it uh, uh, 8.6 out of 10, Brendan. And I suppose that there must be a there be a sort of minimum number of animals you'd need to do in order to to make it um viable that system because i assume that to, to buy the initial kit it would would not be inexpensive um but the more more patients you do once you've got the initial instruments that help you place and do the measurements and that it's just uh, just the actual hardware that you're implanting from each case and, onwards. I, and I haven't done the specific numbers at the moment, I don't have them to hand, but um, there's two things. It, it's definitely uh, it's definitely a, a, th- a critical mass. You do have to do a certain amount to um, make them worthwhile. But I, the key thing, I think, Brendan, is that um, uh, most practices, I would suspect, would see enough cruciate, to, uh, cruciate cases to um, to justify the investment in the training and the equipment. I don't think the number of cases is the problem. It's a really interesting thing. I've been contemplating this a little bit lately because a surgery of this sort, I mean, you were talking to me before we came on air and, um, and I know I refer, you know, if I've got a 50 or 60 kilo dog, I refer those for um, the specialists most of the time they're looking to maybe do TPLOs in those very heavy dogs. Um, and, um, you know, these 20 to 40 kilo dogs that I can whack a, a Securos cage in the cut, they're, they're great surgeries to do. But um, but I think surgery of that sort, orthopedic surgery, is, uh, I don't know, dying in general practice, in general accession practice. I think um, uh, that many... Uh, recent graduates might have much less experience in that stuff than that than maybe you and I. Um, so yeah, I think that it's a it's an interest. Maybe maybe Brendan, one of the factors that um, that contributes to a general dissatisfaction 
uh, with the with the cho- with our chosen profession for many recent graduates, and maybe a reason that they're leaving the profession um, has to do with that absence of satisfaction that um, a wide variety of surgeries might provide. I don't know. I know many of the the uh, the, the wonderful vets I work with who um, have. Uh, been to university more recently than me. Um, they, they they definitely. Uh, what's the right way to put this? They they want to be perfect all the time, Brendan. You know, I've told you many times how imperfect I am, and um, and I think they uh, don't have the the necessary give it a crack attitude that um, that maybe we we had to have 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and so they're much more inclined for something that might require an adaptation of a skill that they, a surgical skill that they have. If they don't uh, have a rack of um, training in that procedure, they're much more likely to flick it off to a, a, a specialist if that's possible. And, and interestingly enough, at least all across New South Wales now, there are... Um, they're at least, uh, um, if not registered specialists, veterinarians who have a particular interest and uh, um, additional training. Um, you know, most places across the whole state have access to practices like that, uh, veterinarians like that. So, yeah, it's an interesting the whole the whole complex of orthopedic surgery and how how often do we refer it how often do we do it ourselves how much do we invest in it um uh, i know there's practice valuers who uh definitely take a well a dim view of high referral rates they note that the most successful and uh, financially viable practices do a significant amount of their own surgery, particularly orthopedics. Well, I, th- I, th- I think one of the reasons why, especially the younger veterinarians, are a little bit reluctant to jump in and do those procedures is the concern, and you can perhaps comment officially or maybe unofficially as being a board member about um, the concern that you are doing a procedure that um, that, that you've pushed or told um, at university maybe or, or suggested at university that you do send all these to a registered specialist. So what's your thoughts on, you know, um, how, how do you get around that? And, um, well, the way I do it would be if, if I was doing that procedure and I don't, don't use that system in my practice, Mark, but if there was a similar process with another procedure, I'd be saying to the client, look, I'm quite comfortable um, with doing this p- particular procedure on your pet and this is roughly the estimate of what I think it will cost um, if all goes to plan. Um, your other option is going to a, a, a specialist, whether it's an orthopedic specialist or, or whatever other system we're referring for, and um, that's what they do all day every day and, and perhaps you'll get a better result um, from them. Um, you're almost certainly going to get a, a, a cost increase um, in that, but um, I then handball it back to the client and say, look, you know, if you want the best, there's the orthopaedic surgeon. I'm not a specialist, but I'm comfortable and in doing listen, that procedure. listen, you've hit the nail on the head as usual. Disclosure is the key thing. Um, I think... Uh, 
particularly from a board point of view, um, that it's the circumstances where clients don't feel that they've had the opportunity to choose that makes them much more likely to uh, get to the point where they lodge a complaint. Um, and if you have had that discussion and, and you know, literally the words you've said are very similar to the ones I say that, um, you know, there, there are people that do this as their specialty um, and... Um, and I'm happy to send you to them, but uh, this is a procedure that I'm happy to do in your case. Um, and and uh, we have a talk about, as you suggested, the estimate of costs, and um, then people make an informed decision. Once that happens, I think um, there's there's less chance of, uh, of um, complaints arising. But I, you are right. Um, it's an interesting topic to contemplate the uh, the expectations of clients that um, that I, I definitely think that when I graduated, if I was to say to a client, "Look, I've never done this before, but I'm 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 uh, you know familiar with the the broad techniques. I think I can apply it to this particular case. So I'm willing to have a crack." Um, when I graduated, the the clients would go, "Yeah, well, that's fair enough," um, and probably there wasn't as many trained specialists at in those dim dark days of uh, recent graduate uh, experience in my career, um, but now clients are you know there's television shows telling them all the time about the super vets and the the amazing things that can be done in specialist uh, practice, and so the expectation of clients has changed dramatically, and um, the internet gives them a, a resource with which they can research that stuff. So I definitely think there's a changes both in our our profession and in the people, the clients that we uh, serve. Yes, very well put, Mark. And, yes, I was just having a quick little <laughs> cough there while you were going through that. Um yeah, um, I, yeah, I think I think that's a very good topic for a um, an actual main topic for a future podcast about referral cases and, and dealing with them, um, both being the person referred to and referring cases. And um, I think there's a few lessons there's, to be learned for everybody. There's a couple um, of that, really good memo. points, uh, and, I, and I'd love to take the time, particularly given um, the experience of looking at uh, some of those, um, you know, the reasons for complaints uh, might might uh, inform things that we can change a little bit, um, and even just in communication. But, yes, topic for another time, Brendan. We will put it, it's it's on the list, Mark. It is on the list. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to jump into the first news story. And the main topic this week is news, 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 news. We're trying to get through a few of the few of the news articles that have been piling up on our on our um, virtual desks, Mark, and my, my in-tray is absolutely chockers. It's full. And my first news story is Canada bans all captive whales and dolphins. Um, Canada is free and willy, Mark, which is a, which is a good I thing, I think. I love Yes, yes. It is now 
it is illegal to breed whales and dolphins or even keep them in captivity. And the bill covers all captive cetaceans, whales, dolphins and porpoises and establishes fines up to $200,000 for violations. It was they passed it was called Bill S203 Mark and it's also known as the Free Willy Bill um, on June June the 10th this year and aquariums um Canada Canada currently has two facilities that keep dolphins and whales in captivity. May have seen the writing on the wall long before the bill began its journey um, because last year the Vancouver Aquarium, which has kept dolphin and whales for more than 50 years, announced it would phase out cetacean program by 2029 anyway. So, yeah. So they're only, one of the one of the concerns, Mark, is that um, that um, the people that are lobbying against um, the the potential this this bill, um, which has passed, is that um, it the bill may make it necessary to terminate late stage pregnancies of beluga whales, um, um, which, well, I, I'd expect that they they wouldn't do that; that they just let them have have the have the youngsters there. But we'll see what what's happening there. But yeah. Um, and I know there are a, a fair number of an increasing number of countries, Mark, that um, that are phasing out um, cetaceans in captivity. Yeah, so that's my it's news a good story topic, number Brendan, one. Mark. And um, it does. Uh, I, I I know that our professional organisation, the AVA in Australia, has struggled to come up with a a, a policy that's you know our broad church, the veterinary profession, has different views, and uh, I know our professional organisation has struggled to come up with a clear direction. But um, but I I I think that there are some species of animals um, that uh, that really can't be kept in captivity, um, and uh, and I you know cetaceans certainly fit into the category of animal that has to make significant compromise to their normal behaviours and whatnot. So um, I'm I'm and look I've been we've uh, been able to see some of the. The complications that happen from breeding these animals in captivity, and um, and it doesn't always work as well as you would think. So I'm sort of glad, Brendan. This has made me glad. If there's one more country that stops keeping uh, dolphins and whales in captivity, that's a good thing. Good. Um, What's your first? I'm going to recap. I think we actually talked about uh, about this topic um, earlier in the year, but I just wanted to um, touch on the fact that um, of the the concept. There's a couple of issues in this particular story about the bird that came back from the dead. Um, it's the story of um, a research uh, um, a research article from the University of Portsmouth. And Natural History Museum that um, that reports on rails, those flightless birds uh, that um, you know we have rails here in Australia, but on Aldabra, the the island made famous by the slightly smaller giant cousin of the Galapagos land tortoise, um, the Aldabran tortoise, uh, that on that island, uh, one of the isolated atolls um, has had. Twice rails land on the island um, and then subsequently become flightless because of the nature of the um, 
the environment that they didn't need to fly once they'd gotten there. Um, and so this process of iterative evolution, that is um, the repeated evolution of similar structures from the same ancestor but at different times in evolutionary history, um, is actually, this was the first case in Aldabra where it was identified, but rails all around the world have been shown um, to, to, uh, to be one of the, probably the most common iterative evolutionary, um, you know, uh, subjects. Um, the white-throated rail, the bird in question, is about the size of a chicken, um, and it's indigenous to um, the southwestern Pacific, uh, the southwestern Indian Ocean, um, and they like many rails, are persistent colonisers of isolated islands. Um, but in this instance, when they've gotten to one of these islands um, off Aldabra and there haven't been predators, they've become flightless, uh, a little bit of uh, like the um, dodo at, in Mauritius, Brendan. Um, well, no, no, you, you're... Um, no, go on. Go on. <laughs> you're not coughing at the moment? <laughs> go for it. Oh, I was going to get, just go off the rails there, Mark, and um, talk about my next news story, actually. So, Completely. Um, have Completely. you finished with your rails? <laughs> well, my next news story is a bit of fluff, Mark, so um, I, I don't know why I put it in there, but um, it was in the list of ones to tick off and cross off and, and throw in the bin, and that's about your stress may be stressing out your dog. And it's a little article about research at Linköping University in Sweden um, where they asked owners of 58 Border Collies and Shetland sheep dogs to fill out questionnaires about their dogs, about their own personalities and their dogs' personalities. Um, and they came to the conclusion, Mark, that owners with higher stress levels <laughs> tended to have dogs with higher stress <laughs> levels too. And if the owner is stressed, then the dog's likely to mirror the stress. And if and one of the comments um, where they, one of the co-authors, Lena Roth, was um, interviewed by NPR, it was the owner's personality that influenced the dog's hair, cord, dog's hair cortisol level rather than the dog's personality itself. They measured cortisol levels in the dog's. And the and the human by the look of it, they they took the cortisol level in the dogs from a hair pluck mark and <laughs> measured it in the hair. Um, so um, yeah, um, and the bottom line of this story is that they say J just because your dog is tuned into your emotions and stress, don't worry that your anxiety is hurting your pet. I don't think you should be an anxious that if you're stressed, you might harm your dog, Roth says. Instead, your dog is a social support for you and you are a social support for your dog. Well, <laughs> look, what a lot of cobbles. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, it's, I'm, I'm feeling a bit... Um, Feeling a bit annoyed, Mark. I'm, I'm not. It must be the flu getting to me. Um, but um, I, I don't know about that. Um, I've got to chase up that actual paper and see if it did report exactly what what they were saying in that um, bit of fluff I there, think Mark. That, um, but, um, what's your thought? No on bloody it? surprise that um, if you're a stressy sort of person, a bit anxious about life, um, that uh, your pets are likely to, um, you know, sense, smell, hear whatever be be aware of it and they're likely to be similarly worried about whatever you're worried about um no surprise no one's at fault but it doesn't surprise me brendan 
Well, that leads us on beautifully um, to your next news story. I'm going to punch out the uh, from a small 2011 study um, where researchers tried to to identify the best way, the right way to pet your dog without stressing them. Obviously, you don't want to pass on your um, your uh, personal anxieties. (laughs) Um, So the first point (laughs) is that you should avoid eye contact. um, That that um, eye contact is one of the non-verbal signals uh, between dogs um, that uh, raises the the uh, threat level, and we should really avoid it because they hate it when humans do it to them. Um, so slightly avert your gaze and maybe angle your body just slightly in a, a different direction. Number two, invite the dog to greet you. Put your hand down in front of them, the back of your hand. Let them have a smell of you. Don't necessarily reach over the top of their head straight off. Maybe even squat down and don't present as tall and threatening a a um a a, a, a persona. You've obviously got got to be careful not to put um, your uh, your yourself at risk. Um, make sure that you can always withdraw quickly, whether it be your arm. Make sure the person with the dog on the lead has them under control. But um, slow and steady, small, and just uh, holding your hand out maybe. Um, pet gently is number three. Um, be calm and slow, rubbing in the direction of the fur. Don't get all rough and tumbly. This is a bloke thing, Brendan. I don't know how many times in the consult room uh, blokes come in and they want to wrestle their dog. They want to toss them around. Yeah. I thought they were going to say they want to wrestle you. <laughs> no, um, they want to wrestle their dog. And it's not good. The dogs don't like it. They they It goes quickly from play to a stressful thing. Number four is the best petting spots. The study found it's a best to avoid reaching for the dog's head or face. Um, and that sort of bears no uh, big surprise that um, it's a very threatening uh, gesture to over, to, you know, to come across the top of the head um, in the direct vision. And it's a, a, a an area of personal space that, the, that many dogs feel the urge to protect. So um, gently stroke the side of the dog's chest, maybe uh, um, over the shoulders. Um, as we said, uh, gently running your hand in the direction of the fur without um, significant pressure. Um, so just you've always got to be careful if you're dealing with a uh, dachshund because if you rub their shoulders and back, you know, they may well have pain down their back. So always be careful that way. And finally, um, well, penultimately, one but finally, um, look for signs of stress. Like obviously be aware of those signals that the dog is sending to you that they feel uncomfortable. Um, so if they are yawning, licking their lips, looking away, ears back, they're very, very concerned and it's best to withdraw and try not to uh, stress them or stop trying to pat them. You've got to really observe that. And the last one um, is don't hug them. Like, you know, we, you and I, Brendan, hug each other all the time and, well, at least I feel comfortable about it. But if we were to do that with dogs... um, Especially when you've got clothes on, Mark. (laughs) 
Mark, so we're not allowed to we're not allowed to look at them the the wrong way. We we can't touch them in specific spots on around the head or, or on the side or the back. Um, we can't um, we can't hug them. So should should we be having these animals? Well, as that's a good pets, question. Mark? I do. It's I have them as pets, and I follow the rules. I think everyone else can too. Well, my next news story is. Are dogs really smiling at us? <laughs> and I want to talk about whether dogs can smile and whether they do smile, um, what it means, Mark. So since we're on the topic of um, anthropomorphism here, um, a study published in the Journal of Current Biology, that esteemed journal, Mark, tested how wolves and dogs would respond to the impossible task of opening a container to get at some meat they knew was within. The researchers found that while wolves would simply stalk off and get annoyed when they discovered they couldn't open it, dogs would turn around and give their humans a long, inquiring gaze, suggesting that these animals knew a person could help them complete the task. Um, I think Annie's got that look down pat with me and um, she's got me wrapped around um, her finger as far as um, getting things done. Um, and another study a study published in the journal Science found that both dogs and humans experience an increased levels in oxytocin, Mark, when they lock eyes with one another. So another, so there's something going on there. A shared gaze is a fundamental mechanism for cooperation, if you think about it, according to one of the researchers called Benjamin, told Life Science. Humans have, made, have bred this trait into dogs over the course of their domestication. And further on in this article, Mark, they said, trying to find a bit about about smiles. They wanted to know if this behaviour of when dogs do a, a wide-eyed um, facial grin, is it an actual smile or not? Um, so there we go. Um, I'm trying to find what it – here we go. That brings us to the smile. Does your dog's wide-mouthed expression carry the same significance as a human grin? Kaminsky advised caution. I've had dogs all my life, so I know that if you know your dog really well – you're able to read its behaviours. I've got no problem with giving certain behaviours a label, she said. But as a scientist, of course, I say, how would we know that is a smile? We have zero data telling us that this is what it actually means. So it's a subjective thought with it. And I think they go on to argue a little bit about the relaxed open mouth in dogs being a positive thing and that maybe it is a bit like a smile, um, but I think well, we're reading a little bit The article reminds me it, of a, another not. article I read recently, Brendan, um, in the, um, the proceedings of the uh, National Academy of Sciences in the United States, um, which talked about the evolution of facial muscle anatomy in dogs. And this article suggests that um, that there are actually additional muscles uh, that function on the palpebral fissure on the eyelids that um, dom that domestic dogs have additional muscles that are not present in wolves and interestingly are not present in um, the Arctic breeds in Malamutes and um, and huskies and the Arctic Go on. Yeah, absolutely. I saw no, that article as well. well I did have it down for next week's podcast, Mark, so we'll cover it today. Excellent. 
Excellent. No, no. It it was a very well, fascinating article. It, it fits so well um, into the no, topic you just discussed. So um, I, I did feel uh, that it was worth mentioning that um, they actually uh, – that, that, um, that it's a complicated thing, maybe not uh, – direct selection pressure, not not that we've actually chosen dogs that have uh, baby eyes, essentially, much more uh, pleasant to look at eyes, but um, that they get a reward for having those eyes, that, um, that humans are more likely to, you know, 10,000 years ago when the fire was roaring and we had a bit of um, woolly mammoth bone, that the dog that had those sorts of eyes were more likely to toss a little bit of, you know, leftover bone too. And so they survived better and, and uh, bred more. And, and so that trait became something that, um, that uh, domestic dogs developed. Um, so fascinating um, that, uh, yes. that, um, that co-evolution, the, the nature of us growing together in the process of domestication could occur like that, Brendan. Which which doesn't lead me in any way to my Definitely. next topic, um, which is the, uh, <laughs> um, oh, crap, is this, oh, I don't know that I'm going to be able to hold it together, Brendan. I don't know that I'm going to be able to hold it together. But I want to talk about um, some of the biggest issues for wildlife and specifically endangered species in 2019. Um, it's been a rough year last year, but it's just, I think, going to get worse, Brendan. It's just going to get worse. In, in in 2018, we lost the last male northern white rhino. Um, our, we've talked about the vaquita porpoise uh, continuing its, its inevitable slide to extinction. Um, pangolin being... Um, targeted by poachers, um, other air creatures all around the world, and um, particularly one of the greatest democracies in the world now being in the hands of um, of the Republicans and Trump in particular, whittling away key protections for endangered species. Um, and so, um, oh, geez, I just don't know. That's all in 2018. What's going to happen in 2019, Brendan? The rest of the next six months, what are we going to see? Um, I expect from this article that ongoing climate chaos is going to be a major impact um, on many of our endangered species. Um, water temperatures are rising, um, and particularly those species that I was just looking at um, one of the toads, one of the rarest toads in the world that lives on just a few square kilometres of a mountaintop um, that is constantly misty in Borneo. And um, and it will only take very, like we're probably past the point where that environment, that little um, area of habitat will be permanently changed. And that will be the end of that toad, Brendan. So... Well, you're a font of um, um, positive news um, tonight, today, Mark. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's not looking great for many, many, many species, is it? So we're not allowed to we're not allowed to look at our dog the wrong way. All the other species are going to Thank die out. Goodness. Um, but I've got some positive news, Mark. A beautiful, 
A beautiful thing happens when farm animals are allowed to grow old, according to this news story, Mark. And, and I, I quite like this one because it has some lovely photography. And as you know, we do like our photography in the podcast here. And it is about a, well, it's about a, um, a photographer called Isa Leshko. Um, and she spotted a horse named Petey that looked arthritic. It's a, a Napaloosa horse, um, and his eyes were cloudy with cataracts and his coat was dull and coarse and he moved really stiffly. Um, but she was mesmerised by him and she ran and grabbed her camera and she took a few pictures of her. And, and since then, um, she's been out taking pictures of old farm animals and she thinks there's a there's a majesty about these old aging animals and um, it's not a topic that people would particularly normally reach out and grab the camera for you know everybody goes for the cute and cuddly little little just a born animals not the old arthritic um, on their way out animals Mark which reminds me when I start to see people taking photos of me I think <laughs> I'll, I'll, I must be on my last legs Mark um, but yeah, there's some amazing photos that she has there, um, and she's had an exhibition um, of all these animals. And um, yeah, she says many people cry. I've received hundreds of deeply personal emails from people all around the world sharing with me their grief over a dying parent or an alien beloved pet. So it's um, yeah, it was a really, a really nice, um, really nice story. And um, you know, they have a few of the. We'll have the link to it at vetgurus.com um, to some of the pictures there, including um, Violet, the potbelly pig, um, who was partially paralysed, a, um, a, a turkey, Mark, um, a really old um, Southdown sheep um, who was surrendered um, as a, an aged animal that um, wasn't producing fleece anymore, I think, and then a 21-year-old alpine goat, Abe, Who's Ernest? Um, who looks very majestic, and um, yeah, some fantastic photos. And I noticed, Mark, if you've seen the site, you may not have um, that. Um, all of the pics that she's got there are in black and white because you get that stunning sort of um, contrasty images there. And as you know, I do like a black and white picture um, at certain times. Yeah, so. I think it was a good news story, that one, you know, about um, ageing with, with dignity and, and some of the, you know, um, um, putting a focus in a spotlight on some of these animals that are um, in their latter years, Mark, um, and a lot of these were rescue animals as well that have that are just living out their life um, and in retirement. A, as well as the the exhibition and the website, I, th I think that ISA has a, um, a, a book, that um, has these images in it, and as you said, they're they're well, they're emotionally charged. They're 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 complex, um, but they're beautiful images. And um, and I sort of I think it. Um, so many of the stories we talk about, Brendan, are tangential to our veterinary profession. Um, just they are sprung from our deep interest in animals in general. Um, but this is one that. Um, that I felt returned to, um, you know, some of those themes of our professional life that uh, that do talk about, um, uh, that do talk to the the nature of grief and um, the nature of respect and and uh, and what how to celebrate um, a generous and long life and ensure that those um, those last bits maintain the dignity and and uh, uh, quality. 
um, that that animal or person has known throughout their life. Yes, it was. It was something that I may have. I can understand why purchase in that that bookmark. <laughs> so what's your next news oh, story? I don't, I don't know. I don't one, know how to characterise this one, Brendan. Um, this one is um, well. I suppose I like to think of it as a positive story. Um, let's well, let's look into it. Um, uh, there's a company. Um, uh, Webster Limited, which is uh, who in Australia here are almond producers. They they uh, they farm almonds, and um, and it's a significant um, uh, business for them. They uh, uh, they produce two hundred tons of almonds each year, um, and uh, they mainly do that in the New South Wales uh, south coast to Riverina region. Um, and one of the things that uh, this agribusiness has to do to ensure that production of their farm product is um, have the the, uh, the flowers fertilised, um, and that involves bees. And so traditionally they have um, spent, uh, well, a third of a million Australian dollars uh, hiring hundreds and thousands of bees in multiple um, beehives in order to pollinate their almond trees throughout uh, southern New South Wales. But only a month ago, the company decided to, um, well, I suppose, how do they, they, uh, this is vertical integration, isn't it, Brendan? They've spent um, $8 million buying Five and a half thousand beehives, so they don't have to hire them anymore. They have their own. Um, so uh, it's a, um, I suppose, in one sense, it's a, a testament to the importance of bees to businesses, uh, to agri businesses particularly, um, uh, and it will be, I think, in the future, uh, a little bit of a flashpoint that many um, farmers who Organically, you know, um, as part without act without uh, significant action on their part, have their plants fertilised and produce a crop, will now maybe in the future um, be required to acquire uh, bees of one species or another to ensure their crop actually comes to fruition. Um, so I suppose it's it's a positive recognising the importance of bees and maybe a bit of a negative in that we've reached a point in history where you can't just rely on those wild bees to do the job for you. You have to uh, ensure that there are colonies on your property that will fertilise your almond trees, Brendan. Yes, and I think we forget about the importance of bees, don't we, Mark? And um, it is one of the topics that I that I um, give give part of a lecture to first year veterinary science students here in Melbourne, Mark, every year, and they often look at me quizzically and say, "Why the hell are we learning about bees in my first year of the veterinary science course?" And um, my answer typically to them, "Well, it's on the it's on the." Um, list of topics so we have to teach it but by the time we sort of go through the importance of bees and and potentially the the importance of veterinarians within the bee industry mark um they realized that hey yeah it's something that they didn't yeah, think of yeah. 
as they're munching their almonds in the class, <laughs> looking at me. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's it's um, I find it fascinating the the importance of bees um, in the world. You know, where would we be without bees, Mark? Well, <laughs> that doesn't lead us on to my next news story, but I'm going to give it anyway. And this is my last news story, Mark, and it's a. a, a a bit of a fun one. Um, it's got a cute dog in it called Chipper, and Chipper the dog recycles. Um, and Katie, Chipper's owner or guardian, um, adopted Chipper in Mesa, Arizona, as a puppy. And they spend a lot of time outside. And Chipper played with plastic bottles when he used to find them on work walks, and he always used to pick them up for her. So he, she ended up encouraging him to pick up all these um, plastic waste bottles and, and, and even more than just a plastic bottles, and it became his thing, Mark. So Chipper has a passion for the outdoors and for picking up trash, and they go out several times a week, and now he has, as you could imagine, his own Instagram um, following, um, and he has more than 31,000 people who follow him, um, and he goes out and about and he picks up all sorts of trash shoes and um, old, um, not just the bottles, but all sorts of rubbish that he collects, um, and she uses it as a method to encourage um, the prevention of polluting our environment and to cl- clean up the waterways around her around her um, home. So, And he occasionally picks up discarded clothes and even yeah the occasional old shoe but there's some cute little photos there of chipper so i wanted to end on a maybe a little bit of a trivial one but i think it's a, a good one with the the human animal bond there mark that we've we've sort of and i think that may be spoken about on, an, on an uplifting note that might be a week. good point to finish this week's podcast brendan well I was, did you want I'm to talk about happy you to don't talk want to about talk it, about but... the next one <laughs> well let's leave it to next week yeah no you've you've um you've given me a very strong hint there and i should um, i should take that yes um because i think that that one that next um that next news story is is quite a good one that um yeah, we can leave it to next week because it, it, it both, covers a couple, of, a couple I, I, of topics dear to it. our hearts, Mark. Doesn't it? It definitely does. Well, well, that's something for our listeners um, to think about, especially for those in Kazakhstan um, for next week. And um, we will look forward to listening to you. Or, or no, you look forward to listening to us, won't you, next week. And we will talk to you then. See you next week. to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time we'll be right back.